Well, I, I decided to hold off on going through those scripture references dealing with the civil magistrate. I'll give you a, a hint. Uh, we will come back to that when we deal with the chapter on the civil magistrate. And certainly, scripture is something that we have to take account of, and we don't want to uh, just disregard that. So we will come and look at those scripture references. Um, the men who wrote this back in the 1640s pointed to scripture to say that the civil magistrate was lawfully to exercise his authority in response to these abuses of Christian liberty, and there is a place for that, but as we've said, this wasn't worded in a way to guard against an overreach of that authority. And so we will come back to this, and I hope we can see how Scripture is true, but there is an important uh, application of Scripture. As always, we have to be careful that we don't misapply or misappropriate Scripture uh, to, to make it carry a point that it was not intended to. And that's what we'll come back and look at how these references um, are, are, I believe, and as the American Presbyterian Church back in 1789 concluded, uh, this was not being precise and careful in the way they were being applied. So we'll come back to that. And so this morning, we're going to dig right into the next chapter, chapter 21 of Religious Worship and the Sabbath Day. And so we'll read the first, um, you know, we, we might actually go ahead, I think, on our first week on these chapters. Let's just go ahead and read the chapter so we can kind of get a sense of where this is headed, and then we'll, we'll make more careful note um, of each paragraph as we go back through it. So let's read chapter 21. It's in the back of your hymnals there, or you may have a handout but of religious worship and the Sabbath day. The light of nature showeth that there is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all, is good and doeth good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and with all the soul and with all the might. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself, and so limited to his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. Religious worship is to be given to God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and to Him alone, not to angels, saints, or any other creature, and since the fall, not without a mediator, nor in the mediation of any other but Christ alone. Prayer with thanksgiving, being one special part of religious worship, is by God required of all men, and that it may be accepted, it is to be made in the name of the Son, by the help of His Spirit, according to His will, with understanding, reverence, humility, fervency, faith, love, and perseverance, and if vocal, in a known tongue. Prayer is to be made for things lawful and for all sorts of men living or that shall live hereafter, but not for the dead, nor for those of whom it may be known that they have sinned the sin 
unto death. The reading of the scriptures with godly fear, the sound preaching and conscionable hearing of the word, in obedience unto God with understanding, faith, and reverence, singing of psalms with grace in the heart, as also the due administration and worthy receiving of the sacraments instituted by Christ, are all parts of the ordinary religious worship of God, besides religious oaths, vows, solemn fastings, and thanksgivings upon several occasions, which are in their several times and seasons to be used in a holy and religious manner. Neither prayer nor any other part of religious worship is now under the gospel either tied unto or made more acceptable by any place in which it is performed or towards which it is directed. But God is to be worshipped everywhere in spirit and truth, as in private families daily and in secret each one by himself, so more solemnly in the public assemblies which are not carelessly or willfully to be neglected or forsaken when God by his word or providence calleth thereunto. As it is of the law of nature that in general a due proportion of time be set apart for the worship of God, so in his word by a positive moral and perpetual commandment binding all men in all ages, he hath particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week, and from the resurrection of Christ was changed unto the first day of the week, which in Scripture is called the Lord's Day, and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath. This Sabbath is then kept holy unto the Lord when men, after a due preparing of their hearts, and ordering of their common affairs beforehand, do not only observe and holy rest all the day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their worldly employments and recreations, but also are taken up the whole time in the public and private exercises of his worship and in the duties of necessity and mercy. All right, so there's a lot in the chapter, and as we might expect what we've seen so far of the confession. This first chapter sets the, the parameters and, and the guidance for what else is to follow. Um, it's almost as if the question is asked, well, what is religious worship? When is it to be conducted? How is it to be conducted? What is it to consist of? Um, are there any days that this needs to be particularly attended to in? And so the, the answer comes first. This first paragraph then is going to point us back to the first chapter of the confession, which you remember was Holy Scripture. This is important. In, in any question we come to, and we've seen this theme repeatedly, that it is the Scriptures that give us our, the lamp for our feet, the light to our path, that show us how we are to please God. It is His Word to us, and to the extent he's spoken to us, uh, we need to give careful attention, um, both because it's necessary, uh, or else God wouldn't have given it to us, and he certainly hasn't uh, intended for us to cast about in our own thinking for how to answer these questions that he has answered for us and spoken to in his word. And so this first paragraph begins, The light of nature showeth that there is a God who hath lordship 
and sovereignty over all, is good and doeth good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and with all the soul and with all the might. This, this is a, a common understanding if we look at Romans chapter 1. This light of nature, it's the light that God has put within each of us as his creatures bearing his image, however sinful, however fallen, uh, we still bear the stamp of his image, uh, though it has been uh, distorted by sin. And we still live in his world, constantly surrounded by the handiwork of God, uh, constantly partaking of the provision of God in his world, every breath we take, every, every uh, nourishment that we consume. Um, all of it is a constant testimony to us of who God is, of our dependence upon him, of, uh, of his goodness. And so we see in Romans chapter 1, uh, this context of, of the sinfulness of man, why is it so offensive to God? Why is it so wrong that men are living lives of ungodliness and unrighteousness? Why would that call particularly for the wrath of God in verse 18? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You remember what the Lord Jesus said about the one, the, the, the servant that did not know his master's will and didn't do it, receives but a, 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 less, a lesser, a, a slighter correction. But the one who knows his master's will and consciously rejects it, he's going to receive many blows. Well, this is where in this context we find all of us in the situation where we are knowingly rejecting the God who has made us. We are living in his world. We, we, can't, we can't help but see all the evidence and even, even within ourselves this image of God. We have a conscience that testifies against us. And so men in, in unrighteousness, because we've listened to the lies of the evil one uh, there in Adam, and we've fallen in him, um, we, we now see mankind suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, hating reality, hating the fact that there is so evidently a God who reigns over us, wishing that the lie of the serpent was true, that we could be our own gods. And you can't be your own God if there, is, if there is a one true God, a creator that you're dependent upon, that you know in your heart you're going to answer to. And so men in their unrighteousness are suppressing the truth. Well, what is the truth that is being suppressed? Look at verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes... Namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish heart, hearts were darkened. And so here we see this light of nature. That's what the confession is referring to. This, this testament, this revelation of the truth of God that is clearly perceived 
his eternal power and divine nature, his goodness, his love of beauty and life is a testament all around us. And so we're, we're clearly without excuse not to seek him and, and to worship him and to give him our service. Let's look also at Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. And notice again that here's Paul. He's speaking to the Greeks there in Athens. Um, they, they aren't of the family of Abraham. They, they've not been those that Paul could point them to, the Old Testament scriptures that were read regularly in the synagogues. These were men of a very pagan background. They didn't have any of that Old Testament um, heritage that the men of Israel did. But still, they're, they're held to account that they're not worshiping the one true God, and they even betray this understanding in, in the worship that they are offering. Look at um, Acts 17 in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. And we can just pause there. Paul, Paul is pointing out something. What, what is obviously true, not just of the men of Athens, but in every society, in every culture, what is true about mankind? What will you see us doing? Worshiping. And Paul points out to them, you, you know you have to worship. You know that you're not God. Even though in, in, in how you live, you, you've created a God after your own image to try to echo back your own will to yourself. But, but nonetheless, you can't escape the fact that here you are in Greece, thousands of years removed from this heritage of understanding in terms of uh, these men would probably be tracing back to Noah's family in terms of any connection to the covenant that God had made with man. And yet here they are. They can't escape the reality that they're religious beings, that they are children of God, rebels, but they know they, they are practicing some form of what they were created to do, to worship, to offer their, their reverence to another, because we know in our, in our hearts that we aren't God that we are not self-sufficient, self-sustaining. And so whether it's the, uh, the Baals and the, the Molochs of the Old Testament, the Canaanites, where, uh, you know, if you're, if you're in an agrarian society, you try to, to be in charge. You try to be omnipotent and, and cause crops to grow from the ground for you. It, the closer you are to the world God has made, and that's one of the problems in our, our culture today. So many people are so far removed from what God has made. They've, they've put as much art of man between them and those realities as they can. But if, you, if you're growing your food to eat, you, you'll come to face very quickly. Your will is not supreme. You're going to run into a drought or you need rain. Right? So there has been some recognition. We're not in control here and, and beseeching the favor 
of a supreme being. This is all a testament, again, to our heritage as the fallen children of God. We know that there's a creator. There is one who sends the rain. There is one who causes the crops to grow and so forth. And so that's what Paul is pointing out to these men, you know, for all of their philosophy and their wisdom and their self-reliance. Here they are. Just the whole city is full of idols. They're not even um, they're not even sure clearly who is the worthy object of this worship. But they filled the city with idols, even to the point that Paul finds um, a shrine here, an altar, with this inscription to the unknown God. Let's just cover our bases. Um, Again, this testament against themselves. They know they should be worshiping, and they know there is a God. So Paul picks up on this. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring, being then God's offspring. We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And so Paul speaks to their conscience. He speaks to them in terms of Romans 1. He speaks to them as those that know there is a God. Even they're suppressing that, but, but it's always there. Paul can point to them. He can talk to anybody in the world and say, Now, I know you know there is a God. I know that you know in your heart there's a creator. And I'm going to tell you who he is. So that's, that's biblical evangelism. It's, it, it goes straight to the heart because, and how, how could we do that? How could we assume that about a person? Well, God has told us in his word. He has made this known to them. He created them. Uh, they, they can't escape some measure of understanding and memory and knowledge of the truth that they are the creature of God. They're the children of God. Uh, rebels, yes, but as Paul points out to these Athenians, uh, they've gotten as far as recognizing and understanding that, that they should be engaged in worship. But even though in their own poetry and philosophy they have identified themselves as the offspring of God, the offspring of the divine, uh, yet look at, the, look at the gods that they parade out and say, well, this must be the god that we're the children of, an idol, an image of silver or gold. This is the one that is the father of us all. You see the foolishness of that. And so Paul is pointing out the truth that all men know there is a God. And not only that, but that he is a good God. He is giving to all mankind life 
and breath and everything. He's not, he's not dependent upon us. We are dependent upon him. Look at Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verse 68, and uh, we'll begin in verse 65. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. And so this is the, the nature of God. That again, Romans 1 tells us his, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Well, what is that nature? It's, his, it's all of his perfections, his wisdom. You, if you study creation, you will just be struck again and again. The more you learn and the deeper you look at the wisdom, the stunning, amazing, incomprehensible wisdom of God and his goodness. We look at how there is so much harmony and cooperation, even in a fallen world, cursed by sin, that, that carries forward the revelation of the goodness of God, how he has provided for his creatures in the world that he has made, and how he has designed life and sustained life on every level. Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 10. Jeremiah chapter 10. And here again, Jeremiah is, uh, even with the people of Israel, having to, having to contrast for them the true God of Israel with the false gods of the nations around. How is it that the very children of God, the very people of God, would begin to look around at these false gods of these neighboring nations and, and think, uh, well, we're missing out something. Uh, these, these other gods, look at, the, look at the blessings that these other peoples have enjoyed or their conquest or whatever the case may be. Look at the enjoyment of life that they have. And here, only because of the patience of, of the one true God toward them and his goodness to lead them to repentance. But here in Jeremiah chapter 10, the prophet says, Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, Learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the peoples are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammers, hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your due, for among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Euphaz. They are the work of the craftsmen and of the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple. They are all the work of skilled men. 
But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At His wrath the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure His indignation. Thus you shall say to them, The gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is He who made the earth by His power, who established the world by His wisdom, and by His understanding stretched out the heavens. When He utters His voice... There is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and he brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false, and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. Not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob." For he is the one who formed all things, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. And so again, if, if we have this understanding that we, we have a need to worship, a, a need within ourselves, we have a need that's evident in our circumstances. If, if you've never felt helpless in a situation, and you haven't lived very honestly or very long one or the other, and so here Jeremiah is pointing, pointing to the children of Israel even, but how foolish is it to think, now I need, I need the provision, I need the blessing, I need the, the bounty, I need something that I can't give myself. I'm going to seek it in worship. And then to turn around and to manufacture your own God, to create your own God, it depends on you for its existence. You cut the tree down and you pay someone to fashion it. You, you add these precious metals to it. Uh, it's dependent upon you. It can't speak to you. It can't provide for you. It can't do anything for you. It's your creation. Uh, you, as it were, have become uh, the creator and it is the creature. And it just speaks again to the stubbornness and the rebellion of man's heart that in his heart, even though He's confronted with his weakness. He's confronted with his neediness and his impotence. He wants to hide all of that from himself. He still wants to be God in his own life. And so the only way he can resolve that tension is to allow, well, we will have worship, we will have a God, but we're actually going to be the creator of this God. And so, as Romans 1 goes on to say, they worship the creature rather than the creator. And so their foolish hearts were darkened. And so sinful men and women, uh, they're seeking, lusting after control, the control of their own lives, even faced constantly with the reality, we're not in control. We can't determine, even this day, we can't control it. I don't know what the weather's going to do or if Clouds will block the sun. I mean, constantly we're beholding the power of another and not ourselves in the world. And so all of this, this light of nature, all of creation, everywhere we look, even just thinking upon our beds at night uh, without the creation to look at, we are confronted with the, with the reality that there is a creator above us, greater than us, who is so good. He's been so kind to us. Here we are. And we haven't been worshiping Him and serving Him and, and loving Him. And look at what He's continually done for us. As Romans 2 says, 
His kindness is intended to lead us to repentance, His patience. He continually gives His good blessings and gifts uh, to these uh, rebellious children, um, leading them, wooing them, calling them to repentance. And to the degree that that call is rebuffed and unheeded, uh, it will only end in greater judgment for all of these kindnesses and blessings. Let's look at Psalm 31. Psalm 31. And so he is to be loved due to his, his kindness, due to his patience, due to the generous provision of his hand. He is to be loved uh, of all, of everything that, that we could ever love. God alone is the truly, supremely worthy object of our love. We, we love that which is good. We love that which is close to us, that which is uh, beautiful. Um, this, this is a reflection of his, of his character within us. Well, God is all of that supremely, perfectly, infinitely, no imperfection, uh, nothing that we could ever uh, find fault in Him. He is supremely worthy of our love. And so in Psalm 31, verse 21, um, Blessed be the Lord. For he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me. When I was in a besieged city, I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. You know, is it true that a sinner gets hungry, and every time a sinner gets hungry and then there's food to eat, that was God's kind provision. And as Romans 1 said, instead of giving thanks, instead of giving thanks, they refuse to acknowledge God or give thanks. Here, here's this, this infinitely good, generous, kind, merciful, gracious God providing for these that have no thought to him, no thought to his service or honor or glory. And, and yet, what should be the, the right response to such wonderful provision? It would be to love him. God, you've been so kind to me again today. Here I am, even with a heart that was not seeking you, had no thought to, to please you, and look how good you were to me. Look how gracious you were. Look at this abundant provision. That's what Romans 2 says should be the case. And so God has shown his love to the world, not only in the outward provision of the creation and his general providence, but especially in the gift of his son, as we read in John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So here is this way of escape that God has given and he has sent his church into the world to declare, as we read in Acts 17, to all, to, to all men everywhere. God is not only explaining 
uh, the goodness that they have enjoyed in their lives and the bountiful provision that they have perhaps wondered about. Uh, but he is much more than that, telling all men everywhere to repent and to come be reconciled with him and to find forgiveness for their sins in the, in the shed blood of his son, in him as the Redeemer. And so the, the goodness of God toward this world is beyond measure. Let's look at Psalm 18. Psalm 18. And so again, what, what we're seeing, if you've been paying attention, um, that catalog of, of duties and obligations that flow out of who God is and how good He is that we read there in the confession is therefore to be feared, loved, praised. We're now looking at the, at the reference for praised in Psalm 18. And here, here the child of God has has called out in distress, Lord, save me, help me. I'm, I'm being persecuted and afflicted. I can't save myself. I can't escape such an enemy. Come and deliver me. And notice the response and what this means in terms of our proper response to God's goodness. <clears throat> in verse 1, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. So God is worthy to be praised because of this, because of His goodness, because of His patience and His kindness and His provision to us, that He is good and does good. He's worthy to be praised. He's also worthy to be called upon and should be. And let's look at Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, verse 12 is our reference. And so because God is the creator of all, He's the Lord of all, and He is good to all, uh, this is an invitation to all men to call upon Him to call upon Him and to seek His mercy, to seek His salvation, which is provided in Jesus Christ to all who call upon Him. In Romans chapter 10, we see in... Well, let's just begin in verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them, but the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? In other words, it's not, it's not some great task that God has laid upon us. If you would be saved, you have to ascend into heaven. Or if you would be saved, you have to descend into the abyss. And, and redeem yourself from the, the jaws of death. But rather, what is the message that God has given us in verse 8? What does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. It's not a message of what we must do to save ourselves. But it is a message of what Christ has done 
to save his people and all that is required. Don't, don't stand at the door and say, well, this is just too much. Can't do that. All that is required is to acknowledge, well, God, I can't save myself, but in your grace, you have provided one to save me when I could not, and I will look to him. I will look to him in faith and confess in verse 9 with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So you don't have to go up to heaven. You couldn't. Jesus has done that. You don't have to go down and conquer death in the abyss. Jesus has done that. And all that's required of you is simply to confess that, to confess that Jesus is Lord, to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. In verse 10, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You see how that's tying into Romans 1. All of these people who are so lost in sin, but they know there is a God. What is it that Paul said in Acts 17? Uh, they know there is a God that, that perhaps they might feel their way toward him and find him. What is that a reference to? It's a reference to this understanding that the Holy Spirit has to work in your heart, but the understanding that, well, there is a God and I'm not right with him and I should be living my life to serve such a good, gracious creator. Uh, I, need, I need redemption. God, I know you're there. I know that you're the creator, and I know that you have the power. I'm asking you to save me. I'm asking you to change me and, and to redeem me and draw me to yourself. Everyone who calls on him, he bestows his riches on. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so he's, he's worthy to be called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart, with all the soul, and with all the might. And so this is what is true and general and common by the light of nature. This is what all of creation is testifying and calling men and women to recognize that their hearts are at war with the good God that they know they are dependent upon and that they are being called to repent. They're being called to lay down their war and to seek His mercy and to understand that it is in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that this has been provided. And so, of course, it is the special revelation of God that identifies the message of the gospel for us and points Jesus to us. It is God's answer to that call. Lord, I need salvation. What must I do to be saved? The scriptures are given to answer that question. You must repent and believe in Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, as Paul and Silas answered the jailer. Well, we'll have to stop there for this morning due to time, but we'll pick up there and continue on then. So what does that mean? If we are to worship this God, uh, how are we to worship him? And, and when and so forth, we'll, we'll see the Scripture answer those questions. Well, let's close with a word of prayer. Our Father, we give thanks to you for your grace to us. Lord, even before 
we were reconciled to you in Jesus Christ. You were so good to us. And even while we were yet enemies, Christ came and died for us. And even before we had uh, called upon your name, Lord, you had uh, set your love upon us. We love because you first loved us. And we thank you, Father, that even the faith with which we believe in Jesus is the gift of God, so that we have nothing to boast in, nothing that we have accomplished or done. Lord Jesus Christ is the one who has done all things for us that we might be saved. And we depend upon you to open our hearts and to change us from the inside out, to give us the faith to believe you are the author and the finisher of our faith. And so we rejoice to belong to you, Lord, in this new relationship of being reconciled and made your children. And we desire, Father, that our hearts would be stirred up within us, that we would not become like spoiled children, foolishly thinking that all of these gifts and all of these blessings um, are such that our thoughts and hearts would revolve around ourselves as though we deserved any of these blessings. But, Lord, rather we would be lifted up in our, in our hearts to consider you, that our eyes would be lifted up to behold you as the one who has blessed us so, and our, our hearts would be consumed with you, Lord, uh, that we would delight to worship you. And today, Lord, we pray that our worship would be more, um, more marked by devotion and love and gratitude, a recognition of how dependent we are upon you and how gracious you have been to us, Lord. How kind you've been. Oh, Lord, please come by your Spirit and stir our hearts so we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.